Welcome to Coffee Talk with Linda Davis. I'm Linda Davis. Before we dive into God's Word today, just a little about myself. I love Jesus. I love coffee. And I love sharing keys to abundant living. So go grab a cup of coffee and join me today as we talk about telling and walking in the truth. Several weeks ago, I shared a podcast titled Sweet Little Lies. And this is kind of a follow-up to that. If you haven't listened to that, I would highly recommend going and giving it a listen. It's a really good, short talk on not believing the lies of culture, not believing the lies of the enemy, not believing the lies we tell ourselves, and not believing the lies other people tell to us and about us. So this is just kind of a follow-up to tell the truth. And it's all based out of the book of James, a very short book in the Bible, one of my favorite books of the Bible, I guess, because he's so direct and he tells the truth. I'm sorry, Nehemiah 8 verse 10 actually tells that, that the joy of the Lord is your strength. It actually says right before that, do not grieve. So in that difficult situation, you know, whatever it is you're grieving, it can be an actual person, it can be a dream, it can be a circumstance, it can be a missed opportunity, whatever it is, do not grieve that. For the, Don't stay in that place of grief because the joy of the Lord is your strength. So you can't stay in that place of grief. Like, you know, Psalm 23, right? It tells us, yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death. We're going through it. He's telling us that valley of the shadow of death, it's not a, it's not a good place. It's not a good time, but you got to just keep moving on through it to get to the other side. And actually, it's only a shadow right? It's the valley of the shadow of death. What, what is a shadow? It's not real. Death's not real, actually, right? In the physical sense it is, but truly, we actually never die because we will have eternal life. But anyhow, Nehemiah 8.10, it tells us, do not grieve for the joy of the Lord is your strength. That's why James also tells us in chapter 1, verse 2, to count it all joy. Because our understanding of joy is different than God's understanding of joy. Joy and happy are not interlocked. Our happiness should not, should not be the measuring rod of our joy. Our joy should be our anchor in the Lord. Our happiness is based on circumstances. Sometimes we're happy, sometimes we're sad but we're still in that joy of the Lord, being anchored in him, having that strength in him because joy is our source of strength. It's leaning on him no matter what. It's understanding that God sees joy in the midst of our trials, which sounds crazy, but you wanna know why? Because he knows when we come out of that trial, he has the understanding that when we walk out of that trial, he, whatever is coming off us during that trial is bringing us closer to what he intends us to be to fulfill his purposes in our life. 
That's pretty powerful. He has that understanding that in the trial, even though he didn't cause it, he's going to use it for his good. And he's purging us and he's bringing forth something good he sees in us. I use this example all the time in this area. It's like when you're a parent and you have a young child and you discipline them. Why do you discipline them? Because you know there's something better down inside them that's showing up on the surface right now. You know there's good inside of them that hasn't come up out of them yet. And you really spend your whole life as a parent or their whole time as a parent raising them up trying to get that goodness you see down in them to come forth so they can go out and they can be a a positive, contributing person in society, someone of character and integrity and moral standard in society. That's what parenting is all about. It's like the mother and the father, the one that see the good down in there, and they're in a healthy parenting relationship. When you have a healthy relationship with the Lord, your whole time is to try and get that goodness out of them. That's what God's doing with us. When we're in the middle of a trial, he's trying to get that goodness he sees down inside us. He may be the only one that sees it, but he's trying to pull it out. And sometimes that takes some discipline. Sometimes that takes some purging. And it takes, for sure, yielding on our part. So nothing, being being in that place of being anchored in the Lord, right? Knowing and saying, no, the joy, I'm not going to be rocked by this. The joy of the Lord is my strength. I'm not happy right now. I wish things had gone a completely different way. But regardless of that, the joy of the Lord is my strength. What does it go on to say, right? In verse 3, Knowing that the testing of your, and this is what I'm talking about. Knowing that the testing of your faith produces patience. Are you patient? Then you're not there yet. If you say, oh, oh, I'm terrible. I'm so impatient. Then something's off. You haven't allowed the Lord to do the work in you he needs to do. I'm not saying we should be perfected, but if we've been in this for a minute and we're still as impatient as we were 20 years ago, we're not yielding to the Lord. And we have to understand our impatience is a red flag that we haven't yielded. So knowing that the testing of your faith produces patience, but let patience have its perfect work, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking nothing. We can be in this place of being perfect in him, not ourselves, and be complete in him and lacking nothing in him. And then truly, the joy of the Lord, his joy in us is our strength. And it all comes down to walking in the truth and walking in trust and knowing that we can get to a place of lacking nothing where nothing can shake us. Nothing can cause us to deny God because we know above all else He's there in the midst, no matter what the circumstance is. Even when we feel like he's silent, he is still there. And we have to trust that he knows so much more than we do and come to that place of joy in our hearts. That completes us. It girds us up and it strengthens us. In verse five, James tells us, if you lack wisdom, ask God, right? If you If you lack the wisdom, we simply ask God. And this is not a worldly wisdom. 
This is not a common sense type thing. This is the level of wisdom in God that he wants us to walk in in living, having knowledge, having understanding, walking in a righteousness in the Lord. This kind of wisdom. And if we lack in it, James tells us just simply ask God. It's like, you know, one of our children, you know, we have we all have water available to us in the kitchen and our child is in the living room becoming dehydrated because they won't ask us for a drink. Is just ask. Like we can even offer it to them. Hey, do you want a drink? After a certain age, you can't make your kid drink something, right? Do you want a drink? No, I'd rather sit here thirsty. God's saying, do you want my wisdom? <laughs> no, I'd rather sit here foolish. I'd rather sit here not knowing. Yes, yes, God, I want your wisdom. I want your divine wisdom. As a matter of fact, this verse in Strong's Concordance, it calls it supreme intelligence. We can walk in supreme intelligence if we ask for it. But I'll say this, if we ask for it, we have to be prepared to receive it. And we have to be prepared to step in the guidance and direction that this supreme intelligence gives us. And that will be sacrificial. That will be knowing you shouldn't do a thing. Knowing you shouldn't say a thing. Knowing you shouldn't go somewhere. Do something. Not that it's necessarily, this is supreme intelligence. It may not impact you. It's not going to cause you to lose your salvation. But what if it's impacting another? What if it's causing another to fall? Well, supreme intelligence, godly wisdom would say, I will withhold from that then. Whereas worldly wisdom will say, I have the right to do this. And I'm going to do it anyways. So if we're asking for godly wisdom, we have to be prepared to also act in it, regardless of how sacrificial that may be. And that kind of separates the doers and the just hearers. Strong says that this wisdom in this verse is the supreme intelligence such as belongs to God. And it also belongs to Christ who's exalted at God's right hand and the wisdom of God as evinced in forming and executing his counsels. It's divine. It's supreme. It's beyond what we could attain in ourselves. It's not worldly wisdom. It's not studying 20 hours out of the day wisdom. It's a divine supreme intelligence that God downloads to you and you have a knowing. And now you have to be not only a hearer of that wisdom, but a doer of that wisdom. Remember, we're telling the truth. This is to tell the truth. And so now jumping to the very end of James chapter one, something that when I was studying this this book out and these chapters out, something that I absolutely never noticed um, at the end of James chapter one, if you want to go there, if you happen to have your Bible handy in front of you, is it, so it's verse 27, pure and undefiled religion before God and the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their trouble and to keep oneself unspotted from the world. And to keep oneself unspotted from the world. I'm sure, like me, many of you have time and time again 
heard that undefiled religion is to care for the orphans and the widows. I've, I can't, I've heard that phrase so many times, but that's always where it had ended. I have not heard the closing words of that scripture verse. And I've even read this chapter and skimmed right over it myself for years. But boy, it jumped out to me this time, just a couple of weeks on, to keep oneself unspotted from the world. Really lines up with the scripture that tells us we're of this world, but we're not supposed to be in this world. They ought to be able to tell a difference between us. We should not so easily blend in with the world that they don't even know we're Christians. They're watching our actions and they have no idea the difference. Do, they, do people have to ask you? Are people surprised when you actually say you're a Christian? When we say, oh, oh no, I'm a Christian. Are they surprised at that? If they are, then you've been spotted from the world. That word unspotted, I looked that up. It means free from vices. Are we free from vices? This, this is undefiled religion. Taking care of the orphans, yes. Taking care of the widows, yes. But also being free from vices. That's powerful. You know, chapter two, we hit on that whole faith without works is dead. And it really goes back to chapter one and how we face our storms. Uh, we trust in God. That's the works to our faith. We can believe a thing and never trust. Are we believing God and also trusting him to perform his word? Are we trusting him and his promises from our heart? Faith without works is like having all the head knowledge, worldly wisdom, but never allowing it to reach your heart, never getting into that supreme intelligence. Faith with works is stepping out in obedience when it seems absolutely crazy to do so. It's allowing everything you know in your head to actually reach your heart and motivate you to step in obedience, especially when it doesn't make sense, when you know God speaking. This actually is how we are a friend of God. He loves us all. Yes, absolutely. He does. But the friend is someone who abandonedly trusts him in all things. It's what Abraham did. It's why he was called a friend of God. He trusts him to the level of being willing to sacrifice Isaac. I don't even know if I'm there yet. That's, a, that's an amazing level of trust. But that's how he was referred to as a friend of God, right? Abraham was simply willing. Talks about that at the end of chapter two. And then we roll into chapter three, which randomly just starts talking about teachers, which is kind of interesting. It just shifts. The book of James shifts all over the place. If you slow down and read it, it's like, boom, I'm, you know, it's kind of like uh, rabbit trails. It's like, okay, you know, I'll be talking to a friend and I'll be like, okay, changing direction on you here. This is what the book of James does a lot without that warning. But uh, chapter three, first it starts talking about the teachers how they're held to a certain stance. On the other hand, it starts talking about who possibly is perfect, right? You know, does anybody stumble in word? Uh, in teachers, it's telling them, you know, uh, you're going to receive a stricter judgment, but then it goes on to say who's perfect, which is <laughs> kind of interesting. You know, as teachers, you should hold yourself to a higher level, is my impression. But also, like, you know, the students, you know, give the teacher a little break. They're not perfect. Stop expecting them to be so utterly perfect. 
you know, let's take the magnifying glass off the leaders and just waiting for that one thing that we're like, oh, see, I knew it. It, it, They're not perfect, but they are supposed to hold themselves to a higher standard. That's, That's what I believe that's saying there. And then it goes into the whole tongue, right? Starts talking about about how we talk and how our tongue and it can't be tamed and it needs to be bridled. I mean, this is huge. Taming the tongue, you know, we can't perfect that either, right? Because it says nobody can tame their tongue, but we can get it under control. And when we choose not to, we're just simply gratifying our flesh. It's vital to our lives. It's vital to our families. It's vital to our relationships. It's vital to our households and it's vital to the body of Christ. For all of us to understand how much power we hold in our mouths, right? Proverbs tells us there is death and life in the tongue, but I don't think we actually grasp that and truly understand it. Do we understand the weight of our words? This chapter, chapter three of James, it lays it out for us. It tells us that the tongue alone can set our lives on fire, a fire of destruction, that we can't tame it. We can't reel it in. Remember, this is all truth. We can choose to be self-controlled. We can choose to yield to the Holy Spirit. Instead of being self-fulfilled and saying what we want in that moment that we want to, instead of yielding to the flesh, when we want to say something that really Number one, doesn't need to be said. Number two, shouldn't be said. We're really just looking to pleasure ourselves in our flesh in that moment. That's the truth. We have to learn. The Holy Spirit will tell you. He told me years ago, uh, and this was not an easy lesson for me to learn. Close your mouth. Close your mouth. That's what we're being asked in chapter three. Will you close your mouth? How can you bless God and kill your neighbor with the same mouth? Your neighbor is anybody that you come into contact with. That's powerful. We so casually knock people off the shelf, knock them down a peg or two, not even thinking about what we're saying. And I just want to remind you, we cannot get it fully under control, but we can tame it. And we should always Always keep in mind with ourselves and even other people that we're around that the words that come out of mouths, our mouth, for us, we should be aware of the words that come out of our own mouths so we know what to work on. And then also, it can be very revealing about the people around us. What is in our hearts will come out of our mouth. It cannot be denied. Can't. I mean, it says right in verse 10 of James 3, out of the same mouth perceive blessing and cursing. My brethren, these things ought not to be so. Shouldn't be happening. Get it under control. When you know it's not under control, figure out where it came from. Figure out the root in your heart and deal with that so it will be under control. Don't set lives on fire with the words of your mouth. Then we kind of just shift again. Now we're not talking about the tongue anymore. We're over in chapter four. We're talking about the proud. God resists the proud. Yet what does he consider pride versus what we consider pride? Well, in chapter four, it seems pride stirs up strife. Pride says, I want to satisfy self. We want what we don't have. So we fight for it because we believe we deserve it. Certainly over the other person. 
or we don't fight for it. And instead, we become bitter because someone has something we don't have and we think we deserve it and we're doing. Yet God says, he simply says we don't have because of one of two things. It's in verses, I believe, verses two and three. You do not have because, number one, you don't ask, or number two, you do not have because you ask amiss. Means the motive in your heart of why you're asking for whatever you're asking for is off, and God cannot grant that. We're self-motivated in our asking. What's our motivation in asking? We either don't, we, we have because either, we don't have because of one or two things. We haven't asked or we're asking amiss. What's our motivation in asking? We have to ask ourselves that. Is pride the root? Do we think it's our just due and we want God to move on our behalf because we deserve it? I mean, we're the only ones that can answer these questions about ourselves, but they are important questions to ponder, I guess. Maybe we don't even know the answer. Right? Since in Jeremiah tells us that our hearts, they're wickedly deceitful. Who can even know them? Well, Jeremiah also tells us, actually, it's the Lord telling Jeremiah, I, the Lord, know the heart and search it. And actually, I'm going to give each one do their own heart. So you might fool others, but you're not fooling God. And you're going to get your just due on what you haven't dealt with. And if you've plowed through the field, if you've plowed up all those roots and you've dealt with the hard places, then you're going to get your just due which is going to be awesome if we don't know that our motivation is off, that, our, that we, uh, we're wrong in why we're asking, we're amiss. We can ask God if we don't know the root. Ask him, right, for the truth. And then, like it says in Psalm 4, wait silently on your bed until he speaks the truth to you. And honestly, you probably won't want to hear what he has to say. But then be a doer. Don't just hear it. Do something about what he shows you is truth. I mean, God is so good and God is so faithful. He goes on to tell us in the following verses what almost sounds too simple, but yet it is hard to walk out. Submit to God. Down in verse seven, submit to God. It sounds so easy, but it's really talking about fully, fully, completely surrendering. And in that place of being fully surrendered, then we can resist the devil. What does that mean? Resist any opposing thoughts to God's truth. I don't care how much sense they make. They got to go. If they oppose the truth of God, the devil's got to go when we resist him. The word of God tells us that. And then what do we do in response after that? When we've submitted, we've surrendered, we've resisted the devil, we've cast down those vain imaginations that didn't line up with God's truth, we draw close to God. We fill that void with God. We cry out to God, and I promise you, he can't help but respond. Aren't aren't we as humans, we're supposed to be a reflection of God's image, right? Aren't we as humans drawn to those that desire us? Like that's a natural response. Like you can tell when somebody's standoffish and you're not as drawn to them because they're not drawn to you. But when somebody's drawn to you, you almost can't help but respond to that. It's the same with God. He can't help himself but respond when we're trying to draw closer to him. I mean, James is just really going after it. 
You know, then that's one of the things that I love about him. He tells the truth. Just, I would rather hear the truth. Simply tell the truth. And in the process, he's killing us in this book about it, right? Cleanse yourself, purify yourself, humble yourself, rend your heart to God. Let God do what he's been trying to do all these years through the weeping, through the heartache, through the mourning, through the loss, all the stuff he's been trying to do that we've been resisting him and turning inward. And he's been trying to use all that stuff, not causing it, but using it to draw us into him and to purify our hearts and purge us to only desire him and his ways. And everything else just falls off of us. I mean, chapter four has so much in it, right? We go on, James goes on to talk about not, it's a very short chapter, chapter four, but it's power packed. You know, and I want to encourage you to go read it yourselves slowly. Don't judge a brother, right? We're back at the tongue thing again and not speaking evil of one another. And who are we to judge one another? Even if we never speak it out, but we pass judgment in our heart. If only they this, well, they should that. They should have this. They did that. And, you know, we're the judge, jury, and verdict all in one. And we judge, honestly, over some pretty minor stuff putting the magnifying glass on others and glazing over our own shortcomings. And you have to remember that Jesus himself said, judge not lest you be judged. So that measure that we judge others at will be judged at. And then he jumps into, man, life's just a vapor, right? Don't boast about tomorrow. You don't even know if you're going to be here tomorrow. It really is just a vapor. We know this, but we don't really know this, right? We don't live like we know this, but we know this, especially if you've ever lost someone, lost someone suddenly, lost someone before their time. You begin to realize how true this is. It's like that could have been me. In a moment you're here and the next moment you're gone. All that toil, all that worrying over the years, all of it, none of it matters in that last breath. It's gone. I've often wondered with close family members that I've lost, what would they come back and say? Have you ever wondered that? What would they come back and say? What would be their counsel now that they've been, however long they've been in eternity, in heaven, on the streets of gold, at the throne of God? What would they come back and say? What would be their advice to us? What would they do differently? What would they not waste their time on? What would be the issues that would be important to them if they could come back? What would they invest more time in? Just something I've wondered at times. So now we're jumping to chapter five, the very last chapter. It's a good one. All these chapters are good. I just love the book of James. I've heard, I, I've heard it said and I've studied and read that it, the rich here represent the sinners of the world, the non-believing, even in James' eyes, non-believing Jew. Paul typically addresses his letters, the brethren, But James makes it clear who he's talking to in the beginning of five. Come now, you rich and weep. He's talking to the non-believer, the self-sufficient person. I'm rich. I don't need you. I don't need God. I don't need anybody. I am not lowly. I'm not poor. I'm not dependent on anybody. I'm certainly not dependent on God. So I will not have ears to hear what you have to say. James is warning those people of what's to come. The misery that awaits them. The very things they relied on, other than God, aren't going to be there in the long run. Now, if we've chosen to rely upon God, then we're spending eternity with God. 
There'll be times where we feel let down by God. We feel God has failed us, which he hasn't, of course, because he withholds no good thing for us. And if anything in our life is not at the good place yet, then God's not done with it yet. But if we're steady, if we trust God, if we walk with God, if we draw near to God, if we're long-suffering with God until the day we see Jesus face to face, how precious will the fruit of our patience be then? Establish your hearts in God's truth and remain standing, right? As Ephesians tells us, having done all you can do to stand, what? Stand therefore until you see the Lord's return. Establish your hearts. You make the choice. You make the decision to remain steadfast. You stand, and then you stand some more. And standing will get wearisome. It will get frustrating. It will get tiresome. And we're warned of this. When you feel like sitting, don't keep standing because it's a necessity. Faith and steadfastness that God is absolutely going to do what he said he's going to do. And that he will most certainly send Jesus one day, no matter what things look like. There's this verse, I believe it's Jeremiah 12, chapter 12, verse 5, and it talks about, and I'm paraphrasing this very much, but if running with the footmen have made us weary, how can we compete with horses? I mean, we've only just begun end time persecution. And if we're already wearied, if we're already offended, if we're already frustrated and angry at God, what are we going to do when the horses show up? The word of God consistently warns us we're going to need strength. We're going to need to remain. We're going to need to be steady. We're going to need to trust. And then when we think we're spent, we're going to have to do it all over again, which is equipping us and preparing us for one day to be able to contend with the horses. James in chapter 5 and verse 12, he says, but above all, So beyond everything we've just talked about, and I've only skimmed over it, when he says above all here, he's saying most importantly, right? Everything I've mentioned is important, but above all, above all of that, what? Above everything else he's talked about, let your yes be yes. In other words, let your words speak truth. Be what and who you say you are. And then don't speak about others in vain. Don't gossip about others. Make sure your words are reliable and your words are necessary. And make sure your words can stand on truth. Make sure of it. Especially, we shouldn't be grumbling about our brothers and sisters in Christ, right? Let the judge be the judge. We're all over here being judges. Because, you know, we, it's hard enough contending with the enemy. Never mind, we got to contend with each other too. That's just sapping us of our, our strength to really contend in the spiritual warfare of the enemy. So above all, above all, let your yes be yes and your no be no, lest you fall into judgment. I mean, that's some pretty powerful stuff. And then he closes this all out with the importance of praying and the importance of prayer, the importance of It's that the fact that it's the prayers of a righteous person that are effective. What is a righteous person? Someone that is in right standing with God. We can cry out for ourselves in our desperation. 
and being not necessarily in right standing with him, but be in a desperate place. And he will respond to that. But when we are contending in prayer as a son or a daughter of God's, standing in the gap for others, we have to be in right standing with God. These are the prayers that are effective. James 5.16 tells us that. The effective, fervent prayer of a righteous man avails much. See, this is about telling the truth, knowing the truth. It's the prayers of the righteous man that availeth much. And we don't want to grasp hold of that. We think we can do whatever we want to do and shoot up prayers here and there and God's going to respond. No, he wants us to be somebody that's fully surrendered to him, that has resisted the devil, that has time and time again said, I trust you no matter what. I don't care what it looks like. I don't care what it feels like. I'm going to trust you. I'm in this. I'm standing in the gap. I'm standing in the trenches. When we do that, God's standing right there with us and he will respond to our prayers. God's not playing. It kind of goes back to, you know, we can't be blessing God out of one side of our mouth and cursing him out of the other side of our mouth. He has rules and he has a standard of holiness that he functions from. And we, and he said, be holy as God is holy. As I am holy, be holy. I mean, at least try. We need to make sure that we know what the expectations of holiness are on us and make a concerted effort to walk in that from the heart. There's a standard of holiness that God functions from. And we need to know what it is so that our prayers on behalf of loved ones, on behalf of hurting people, dying people, lost people, are effective. A prayer of faith a prayer of belief without doubt. Like Jesus said, get doubt out of the room while we call out to God. Those prayers, when we're praying earnestly, we would be wise when we, when, when we know we've got to go to war in the prayer room for on a specific point for a specific person. We would be wise to take a moment before we get to praying and ask God to show us like David did. If there's any wicked way within us, that we need to deal with. So we are coming to him with clean hands and a pure heart so that our contending is effective and not just fervent. If I had to describe the heart of James and the heart of the book of James, it would kind of be like that slogan from Nike years ago. Just do it. Just do what you know you're supposed to do. Just draw to God. Just put, be self-sacrificing. Put others first. Put Just completely submit yourself. Stop desiring to gratify your flesh. Seek the Holy Spirit. Look for his direction and guidance. Act on what he's telling you to do, how he's directing you. Just do it. In one sense, it's telling us, practice what you preach or practice what you hear every Sunday. Like start putting it into effect in your lives if you want to see a difference in your lives. Nothing's just do you. God doesn't owe any of us anything. If nothing, we all go, oh God, a sacrificial laid down life. We need to submit to him. We need to draw near to him. We need to humble ourselves. And I promise you in doing that, God will respond 
We need to seek and desire His truth. His truth, how He sees things, sees things from His perspective.